Hello, this is Scott Gillespie, and welcome to the third season of Plants Dig Soil. In this podcast, you will learn how to think critically about regenerative practices as you work to incorporate them into your agricultural, horticultural, and home gardening systems. In the previous episode, I took the long view on regeneration. I returned to 10,000 years ago to trace the development of the soil with which I currently work. If you live outside the area of what is now known as Southern Alberta, Canada, then you'll need to learn about how your soil formed. The soil in this area is young in geological terms, even though its age is almost unfathomable in human terms. If you were to condense the 10,000 years of soil development down to an hour, you would only see agriculture, as we know it, develop in the last minute. I specifically mention agriculture as we know it for a reason. Humans have lived here on this land and have been shaping it for millennia. The current type of agriculture has only been around for about 150 years in my area. Not far from where I live and work, in what is now known as the Dakotas in the United States, agriculture was practiced for nearly 700 years before the Europeans arrived. Buffalo Bird Woman was one of the last farmers in the late 1800s to farm this way. Fortunately, her story was recorded before that way of life ended. Contrasting her story to a first-person account of a settler farmer, Seeger Wheeler, showed that there were not many differences in the way that they approached growing crops. Seed selection, weed control, and land preparation were all remarkably similar. Both ways were extractive. Each admitted that clearing the land, the first crop was always the best. Subsequent crops equaled, but usually never surpassed the first crops. Eventually, the land needed to be left alone for a year or two to regenerate. I argue that the indigenous way was truly regenerative because it was able to support humans for millennia. And the reason for this is the time scale. Imagine the tribes moving up and down the river or valley for centuries. A site could be used for a few generations and then left for 10 or 20 generations. In that time, it would have the chance to regenerate and could be ready to support a few generations of human habitation again. There is also no export off the land. It would be now what is called a circular economy. Everything lived and died in the same area and eventually went back to the earth. The settler mindset was different. It's best to hear it in their exact words, so I'll read a direct quote of Seeger Wheeler from his book, Profitable Grain Growing, published in 1919. The argument is put forward that there is so much fertility in the soil that every bushel of wheat or other grain removes a certain amount of this soil fertility, and that in time, by continually growing heavy crops of grain, the fertility will be used up. Theoretically, this seems like a good argument, but it is not true. The soil is inexhaustible, providing that we husband its resources, and it, it is in fact that we may, by good sound methods of tillage, replace in the soil what the crops have removed. I ended the episode contrasting this statement to the claim of some in the regenerative agriculture sphere today. The only difference is that they see cover crops as being the way to provide all the nutrients that the crops will ever need. Seeger Wheeler was making the statement before the Dust Bowl of the 1930s showed that his system was not sustainable as it first appeared. In this episode, I'll be arguing that we'll be seeing the same thing show up in the 2030s, Only this time, we'll not be seeing soil blowing, we'll be seeing crops fail, as the nutrient supplying power of the soil is once again depleted.
So this is where I want to become realistic in the expectations for what regenerative agriculture can do. The current hype in regenerative agriculture has been based upon experience in the past 5 to 10 years, possibly up to 20 years. Recall from the last episode that if you condense the soil development timeline of 10,000 years to one hour, you'd see agriculture, as we know it, only show up in the last minute. Regenerative agriculture would only be seen in the last few seconds. From my perspective, there are three pillars that are propping up regenerative agriculture right now. Dr. Andrew McGuire from Washington State University's Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources Department was a key person that clarified my thinking in this area. These pillars are largely based on one of his articles, but the concepts are built through many of his posts. There'll be a link in the transcript for this episode if you want to read Dr. McGuire's article. The three pillars that I see are inflated expectations of microbial mining of soil particles, mining of the legacy nutrient applications, and faulty accounting of nutrient flows. Let us start with microbial mining of the soil particles. I hear the phrase, get the biology working for you, a lot. The idea is that if you just get a healthy population of microbes working for you in the soil, they'll provide everything you need to grow a crop. They'll often cite stats such as there are 6,000 to 9,000 pounds of phosphorus in your soil that plants cannot access, but the microbes can. While it's true that there's a massive quantity of nutrients available, the rate of their release by the microbes is greatly overestimated. Two years ago, Dr. Monica Gorzelik was speaking at Agronomy Update about the new research program she was setting up at the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, Alberta. She highly recommended a book called Functional Diversity of Mycorrhizal Fungi and Sustainable Agriculture. I've read the book cover to cover. I did not find any reference to the rate of mining anywhere throughout the book. I emailed Monica to ask her if she was aware of any other numbers. She was not, but she kindly did some searching of databases that she has access to. She was not able to find any studies that gave numbers to the potential amount that the microbes may be able to mine for us. The best answer I've been able to find is in Dr. McGuire's article where he references a 2004 study that shows that it may be higher than previously thought, but nowhere near what we export in agriculture. Last year, Bruce Barker posted a download link on his site, Canadian Agronomist, about a long-lost print publication from 1993, generally referred to as the Red Book. The full name of the publication is Impact of Macronutrients on Crop Responses and Environmental Sustainability on the Canadian Prairies. It's a title that only an academic could come up with, which is why it's known as the Red Book. It gives a great picture of the fertility research from the beginning of agriculture as we know it in the late 1800s and right up to its publication in the 1990s. Research on nitrogen response was not initiated until the 1950s. Nitrogen was not the major limiter in the early fallow systems. It only became limiting in the early mid-20th century. The first research was into phosphorus deficiency, the most limiting nutrient there was on the prairie. After millennia of grass growing and grazing, there should be excess supplies of phosphorus, but there was only enough there to supply a few decades of farming with moderate exports of nutrients. Remember that yields were much lower, and most fields were only cropped every other year. 
If microbial mining could indeed supply all that was needed, do you not think that we would have kicked in and supplied the nutrient needs of the crops? In one of the summary articles, the authors found that prior to 1970, research published in Saskatchewan found that over 90% of the trials showed a significant yield response by adding phosphorus. This led to a boom in phosphorus application, and farmers benefited greatly. In the decades after 1970, researchers were puzzled because they could not get the same level of response. It dropped to only 30-50% to 50 chance of response. The reason for this decline in response was that phosphorus was building up in the soil. It's not as mobile as nitrogen and tends to get weakly bound with the soil particles not long after application. Dr. Cynthia Grant estimates that only 15-30% to 30 of applied phosphorus ends up in the current cash crop. Some claim the rest is lost, never to be seen again. In fact, most of it will eventually make it into your cash crops. It just takes time. So where did the other 70-85% to 85 of your crop needs come from? A small portion may have come from the newly mined soil particles. Some were from the readily available supply that shows in the soil test. The rest came from the weakly bound supply that does not show in the soil test and is not tightly bound to soil particles. It's not easily accessible to plants, but it's not so tightly bound that it cannot return to the soil solution in time through chemical exchange or microbial action. So how can it be that we see pictures of diverse cover crops growing without any applied fertilizer? It may be true that the diverse cover crops are revving up the biology and stimulating microorganisms that normally would not be thriving in a monoculture cash crop. But it's not because they're mining the soil particles. They are, in fact, using this legacy phosphorus built up over decades of fertilizer application. This is the second pillar propping up regenerative agriculture, mining legacy nutrients under the belief that they are unlocking large stores of new nutrients from the soil particles. It's not wrong to rely on this legacy phosphorus. In fact, it may be a good way to get started in regenerative agriculture practices. Using these nutrients instead of applying more nutrients may offset the cost of the seeds for the plants required to do this. Having roots in the ground keeps these cycles going past cash crop harvest and into the shoulder seasons. Any plant is better than no plant, but adding some diversity helps to tap into different microbial communities and captures nutrients from varying depths. If the root mass and above ground mass break down fast enough, then they can supply this previously weakly bound phosphorus to your cash crop without having to do the work to find it. Just to back up a bit, I want you to think about something. Even if we were mining all new nutrients from the soil and can grow all we wanted from this, is this sustainable? 6,000 pounds of phosphorus would grow about 100 irrigated crops and about 200 dryland crops in my area. But then what happens when that runs out? We've only taken from the generations that are yet to come. This leads me to the final of the three pillars that is propping up regenerative agriculture, faulty accounting of nutrient flows. The soil particles can only produce a small amount of the nutrients that we export in a year. The legacy nutrients can prop you up for a little while but eventually you need nutrients brought back into the system. To put some numbers to this, consider a dryland four-year cycle of peas, wheat, canola, and barley. Nitrogen and phosphorus are the most limiting nutrients in southern Alberta, so for simplicity, I'm only going to illustrate using them. 
The peas will make their own nitrogen if properly inoculated, and so the only nutrient export per acre in the form of the grain, assuming that the straw is left on the ground, on a 50 bushel crop will be 35 pounds of phosphorus. A 40 bushel wheat crop will export about 60 pounds of nitrogen and 25 pounds of phosphorus. A 35 bushel canola crop will export 65 pounds of nitrogen and 35 pounds of phosphorus. Finally, a 60 bushel barley crop will export 60 pounds of nitrogen and 35 pounds of phosphorus. Over the four years, you will have ex exported 185 pounds of nitrogen and 130 pounds of phosphorus. On average, this means every year you must replace 47 pounds of nitrogen and 33 pounds of phosphorus. Comparing this annual system to a perennial system with grazing animals shows a drastically different level of export. The Alberta Forage Manual says that a cow-calf pair will remove 11 pounds of nitrogen and 4.5 pounds of phosphorus in a grazing season. At a stocking density of 5 acres per cow-calf pair, this means you're only removing approximately 2 pounds of nitrogen and 1 pound of phosphorus per year. From these numbers, you can see that the way that the most of the celebrity farmers and ranchers have made this work is to change their operation to a grazing-based system. When you're only exporting meat, you can make that legacy phosphorus last for a long time. If you were, in fact, mining the particles, you would make that 6,000 pounds of phosphorus last for 6,000 years. If we only ate meat, this would work, but we need grains, oil seeds, vegetables for our diet as well. At commodity prices, it's hard to make a grazing system work. However, the other key to seeing how the celebrity farmers and ranchers make it work is to understand that they're direct marketing their meat to nearby cities. Some have even vertically integrated, now controlling the processing, distribution, and wholesale side of the business. They capture a large portion of the consumer dollar, which allows them to run only the amount of cattle that the land can handle. They have matched the exports to the regeneration of the land. The past has shown us that many ideas that initially appear to work turn out to be wrong in the end. A hundred years ago, it was believed that the plants took up the actual particles of the soil and humus so that tilling the soil to a powder was what was needed to grow a crop. What they did not know was that they were in fact speeding up the microbial processes in the soil and allowing nutrients that have been locked up for centuries, or possibly millennia, to feed their crops. It took many generations to understand that this was not working. Today we hear that cover crops are all that we need to provide the nutrients to our crops. This is working on many acres, but it is being propped up by legacy nutrients. As the real microbial rates kick in, and the export creates too much of a deficit for the import of nutrients, crop yields will decline. It may only take a few years to a few decades in the case of cash crop systems. In grazing systems, it could take decades to centuries to see the decline, but it will happen. So what is the value in regenerative agriculture? I hope I've not deflated your expectations too much. There's still a lot it can do, and I'll be exploring this more over the rest of the season. I still believe it is beneficial to move towards. However, we must be realistic in how we approach it so we build a solid system that will truly benefit the generations to come. Remember to get local advice before acting upon this information. 
If you don't know who to talk to, get a hold of me and I'll help you find someone. If you're in my local area and are in need of help, contact me. It's always free to chat. If we get to the point that the scope broadens to consulting work, we can work out a plan that fits your budget. Would you like to keep up with me through a free monthly newsletter? Go to www.plantsdigsoil.com contact and select the newsletter option. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please make sure you do in your favorite app. If you're a longtime listener, will you consider leaving me a review? This helps others to discover the podcast. If you know of someone that would enjoy this, please be sure to share it with them directly or through your social networks. If you're still listening, you're probably like me and want to know what the catch is. Why am I putting out this information for free? The reason is that I love to learn and I love to share information. My knowledge has been built up from experiences in my own garden, advising clients in my consulting business, and from reading the latest books and articles on agronomy and regenerative agriculture. I have a Bachelor of Science with an agronomy focus and a Master's of Science with a focus on plant science. Beyond my formal education, I have attained and maintained my Certified Crop Advisor designation and am a member in good standing with the Alberta Institute of Agrologists. Nearly everything I talk about is from free resources posted to university and research organization websites. Books that used to be hard to track down are available to buy or borrow for nearly anyone with an e-reader. The information is out there. Sifting through it all is what takes the time. I make my living entirely from consulting. I don't sell any products, software, or systems. I strive to be as independent and unbiased as possible so I can provide the best advice to my clients and help as many people as possible move from conventional to regenerative agriculture.